host, Jason Tom, and we're back on your airwaves for episode number 14. Most of us thought this show would be spent talking about the fact that Canada's senior men's national team had booked their spot at the Olympics for the first time in 20 years, but a bank shot one way and a rim out the other way resulted in Canada losing in the semifinals of the Victoria Olympic qualifier to the Czech Republic, who went on to win the tournament and take one of the final spots for the Tokyo Olympics. Which, by the way, only has a total of 12 teams competing on both the men's and women's side, which is ridiculous. In a sport like basketball, which is played all over the world, it seems that number should be at 16 at minimum. But it also shows just how tough it is to earn a spot in the Olympic Games, especially during a pandemic year, which is far from an excuse, but... Something that must be talked about. Because outside of the 2015 Pan Am Games in Toronto and a few other exhibitions, our national program has not been able to host an international event for a few different reasons, namely funding. But hosting this last-ditch Olympic qualifier should have been huge for the program, for its fans, and for the effect that it would have on fundraising but it was postponed due to COVID-19. And when it was deemed safe to host last week, fans were only allowed in for the first time for that heartbreaker versus the Czech Republic, and only about 700 people were in attendance. So it was hardly the home court advantage other teams have enjoyed against Canada on numerous occasions. And hardly the chance to add much-needed money to a program that is notoriously underfunded, but that's a story for another day. So let's talk about the game itself. This was one of the greatest comebacks to force overtime in Canadian basketball history. Canada came back from a nine-point deficit in the final minute thanks to six points from Andrew Wiggins, including a game-tying three-pointer that had everyone thinking, including myself, that there was no way we were going to lose this game. Wiggins has been a target for basketball fans throughout this country after he declined to represent his country for the last handful of years. So it felt like in that moment that Canada had casted off the demons of its recent past and that our senior men's national team would finally escape the bad luck that has plagued this team since Steve Nash was running the point for them. But instead, Thomas Sadoransky banked in a shot that was perfectly defended by Lugens Dort, a player who had an outstanding debut for this squad and showed that he probably should have been involved with this program for the last few years now. While Trey Lyles, a player that this program worked on years ago when he played for the age group team to bring into the fold, thanks to the fact that he spent his first seven or eight years in Saskatoon, born to his Canadian track and field star mother, missed a last-second shot that would have sent the game to double overtime. It was all perfect. It all should have happened. I mean, even the play call itself, it was drawn up beautifully by Nate Bjorgren, who was unceremoniously fired after one season at the helm of the Indiana Pacers and as a result 
was available to put all of his energy onto Nick Nurse's Canadian coaching staff. Bjorgren was a part of the Raptors 2019 NBA championship. Again, it was all perfect. And that same play featured a pass that was executed perfectly by R.J. Barrett, who, along with Wiggins, were two standout performers throughout the entire tournament. And Barrett, he grew up on the sidelines of the senior men's national team while his father, the now general manager of Team Canada, was playing for the senior men's national team. Again, this was all perfect. So it brings me back to the question I had hoped would be shed going into the qualifier. Why is there a dark cloud over this men's program? Whether it be Kelly Olenek slipping on a logo in a game against Venezuela, followed by a phantom foul call that gave Venezuela the win in Canada's last chance to qualify for the 2016 Olympics. There was 0.2 seconds left on the clock. Foul called, two free throws, Canada loses. There was another time where Nick Stauskas ate a, a bad burrito in Mexico City and was sick for the rest of the tournament, it wasn't himself and they didn't have a chance to qualify for the Olympics with that either. I mean, it's just bad luck over and over again. Maybe it's contract situations that forced some key players to miss out on this tournament. Or major injuries to both Shea Gilgis-Alexander and Jamal Murray, who were also unavailable. Or finally hosting a major international tournament in a time where you don't get fans until one game, and then you only get 700 of them. Just a lot of bad luck. I mean, the optimists will say, hey, this is the last time we won't have a roster full of NBA players ready to dominate whoever they play. And trust me, I know what's coming down the pipe when it comes to talent and size in Canada's immediate basketball future. But I also know the type of sacrifice it takes for these players to spend their off-seasons committed to this national program. Think of it like this. The NBA already packs in 82 games plus playoffs into a very tight schedule. And when players are on their rookie contracts, more often than not, they are asked by their respective teams to work on something specific in the offseason. Go train. You know what? Train with our coaches. Stay here with us and we're going to put you on a regime that we need you on. And if that all doesn't coincide with a role that their national team wants them to play, guess who wins that tug of war? The NBA team. Because they're paying their contract. Now think about the age players are when they're done their rookie contracts. A lot of the time, they're starting families. And they face all of the same life circumstances anyone else with kids has. So after being on the road on and off for nine months in the NBA, imagine looking at the mother of your child and saying, hey, can you take care of that little one for another two months while I go play for free and put more miles on a body that is the primary earner for our family? It's a lot of pressure. It's easy to say someone should take pride in playing for their country, but when you're talking about an athlete with an earning period that is maxed out at what? maybe 10 years, there is a lot that goes into it, especially with possible multi-million dollar contracts on the line. And you have to remember that FIBA has changed their competition windows. So important games are now played throughout the NBA season, and we will never have a full NBA roster for those games. 
So we will always be forced to try to get a team to come together at a camp before a big tournament like an Olympic qualifier. FIBA changed these rules because Team USA doesn't need any help. And they really don't care whether Canada gets in or not. This is to help level the playing field for everybody else in the world. And Canada gets grouped in with the U.S. because we're in North America. Here's an idea. We have a pool of exceptional basketball players playing overseas at the highest levels on contracts that last one to two years. What if we decide to build a core out of, say, eight of those players and commit to them as they would to us for one Olympic cycle? Work with their agents to sign deals with professional teams that will allow them to participate during these competition windows. I mean, if they leave money on the table to make this work, Canada Basketball can maybe help top them up a little bit as a thank you for their service because players overseas are making a small fraction of those in the NBA. Hey, we now have a summer league here in the CEBL where these same players can come and play and compete and have a chance to train together. But these players cannot be cast aside once NBA players become available. Instead, we have to identify players that will remain the core, say eight of them. But NBA players will be added when available in the areas and positions needed. Listen, if you have to tell four guys that we got Jamal Murray, Andrew Wiggins, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, and RJ Barrett available, they're not going to take offense. They will be the first ones there to cheer them on. But if injuries, playoffs, and contract issues come about, at least you're not stuck then searching for people to plug into those holes. You could have different tiers of NBA players. Here's the guys we go to first. Here's where we go to second. But they're all in conversation. It's all inclusive. During the most recent qualifying windows leading up to this tournament, Canada used more than 35 different players, which was great and showed a buy-in from Canadians all over the world, no matter where they were playing, that they would drop everything they were doing, put on the red and white and come represent. But it didn't help when this team only had a few weeks together in Tampa and a grand total of zero exhibition games played before Victoria. And this was a squad that had barely seen the floor together in the past. There was a bunch of guys that had never played before for the national team, and, and even more that hadn't played with one another. Again, a lot of this had to do with COVID and the pandemic, but we saw it coming. Sure, we can keep waiting for our Canadian dream team, but we are not Team USA. We don't have the same amount of freak athletes to choose from. We don't have hundreds of players to pick out of. We're more like our European, Central, or South American counterparts. And I think that is how we should model our national team. Or we set ourselves up for constant letdowns like this. Now, I do have to add that we will have a Canadian from our men's system at the Olympics, thanks to Roy Rana, who joined Germany's coaching staff for their last chance qualifier. And they won. Rana is a legendary coach from the Toronto basketball scene. He helped bring Canada their first bronze medal with a younger cadet team way back in 2010. That was the first time that the men's side had won any medal at an age group event. Then 
Rana won this country's first ever gold medal at a world event when he was the head coach of Canada's U19 team at the 2017 World Cup when Canada beat the USA and then went on to win gold. It was historic. Rana was the head coach. He's now a lead assistant with the Sacramento Kings. And when Jay Triano, who is with the Charlotte Hornets, decided to step away from coaching Canada for a second time after it was announced that they would be asking him to essentially reapply for the position he held and went 10-2 and through a 12-game FIBA qualifying window, most thought the job would go to Rana. But it didn't. I bring all of this up to say it doesn't seem to matter if we have an NBA head coach, an NBA assistant coach, uh, NBA players, NBA assistants. The NBA doesn't seem to be the answer because we can't seem to break through. But hey, there's always next year or three years from now. But maybe for Paris 2024 to become a reality, We need to rethink the way we do things here. And it would be similar to what our women's program is already doing and succeeding with. Now, it's true that we have less Canadian women in the WNBA with only three. So they're forced to employ this different strategy. But guess what? It's working. Our Canadian women's program is ranked fourth in the world and already on the ground in Tokyo preparing for the Olympic Games. And as we know, with international basketball, nothing is guaranteed. But at least they are there to put their best foot forward. And I hope they get as much love and publicity that our men received over the last few weeks that really just added on the pressure to these young men. I will now get off my soapbox, but we will have more national team talk after this break here on the NPH Hour on News Talk Saga, 960 AM. You are listening to the NPH Hour here on News Talk Saga, 960 AM. I'm your host, Jason Tom, and while the focus of this show is on the men's side of the Canadian national program, I want to remind everyone that the women's program start their quest for the podium at the Tokyo Olympics on July 26th. And the competition window for that event carries all the way through to the weekend of August 7th and 8th if they make it to the medal round. So that is a lot of time for Canada's entire sporting community to get behind our women's team. Canada's group includes Korea, Serbia, and Spain. Now at the Olympics, there are no easy games and Spain is currently ranked third in the world, one spot above Canada, who is currently ranked fourth which is the highest ranking they have ever held. And for listeners of this show, you know that the build to this point started when they won a last chance qualifier to get into the 2012 London Olympics. Capitalizing on that opportunity changed the trajectory of the women's program forever. That was about a decade ago. And it's an example of what winning the Victoria qualifier could have meant for Canada's men's program. But instead, we are back to a waiting period. And with more media than ever covering basketball in this country, it has been interesting to see the response to this loss on social media where there is Raptors Twitter and 
basketball Twitter from a blog standpoint and from individuals who are just passionate about the sport, they are upset. But the mainstream media has been rather subdued. And maybe it's because everyone knows the future for the sport in Canada is so bright. So why pile on? Why make things worse for a program that is hurting right now? But for those that have covered this program for so long and the people who are involved in the basketball community, it's a little more serious to see yet another loss hold the men's senior team back. And one of those people who has been in the grassroots community for over 10 years now is my next guest, and he is the person who helped start North Bowl Hoops back in 2010. And joined now by the CEO of North Bowl Hoops, Tarek Sabate, who's been following this national program for over a decade now. And let's talk about the good, Tarek. Some players really stepped up in this tournament. Some were playing for the senior team for the first time, like Nikhil Alexander-Walker, Lugans Dort. And I mean, Dort a few years ago was on the B team practicing against the senior squad. So, you know, what did you see from those guys and others in general? A big question mark coming into it from an NBA perspective was, of course, was Andrew Wiggins going to play? He did. And then if he was going to play, what was what type of Andrew Wiggins were we going to get? And I think anybody that was watching the national team for the first time in a long time would see that he is as good as everyone says he is, but there's more. And I feel that it was, it was a good development opportunity for him. He's still only about 26 years old. So I think just this is the first time we have to remember that Andrew is in an environment where he's looked at as the guy. It's been the first time in five, six years, maybe since Kansas. Um, so I think that's important for his development. I saw something different, you know, him, I saw his competitive uh, spirit in a lot of different moments where he was just clapped his hands or pumped his fist. And like, he really wanted to win. Like he really wanted to make the Olympics. So I thought that was interesting and, and, and cool. It will be cool to see how that, translates back into his NBA career from a leadership development standpoint. Uh, RJ was RJ. He's, he's the most consistent uh, that we've grown to know uh, through the national program and outside the national program. But I thought Nikhil was a, was a not, I don't think it was a pleasant surprise to me because I, I know how good he is and just, he doesn't have the quite the same type of opportunity as other NBA guys in terms of, you know, being the guy or the franchise player. He's kind of had to, build his way into the uh, NBA, averaged nearly double digits this year, but he was great for the national program. I thought he provided that extra offensive punch um, and being our arguably our best shooter as well. Just a playmaker, a guy that you can put the ball in his hands, he can create for himself and create for others, get to the line or hit from the perimeter. So I thought that was great. And then Lugens, that was, it's crazy to think that that was his first national team experience. And so, you know, He's not only an NBA guy, but he's a, a great role player for this team. And just if you if you he had no more than five points a game, he'll still make an impact on the floor defensively. We need a guy like that, a perimeter-oriented defender. So, you know, th th those things were cool to see for the average fan of Canadian basketball, uh, just to see the NBA guys actually wear the red and white and a good chunk of them. We had an eight, I believe. So, I mean, th those were all positive things. Um, and they performed individually from Wiggins to RJ to Nikhil. Uh, those are our top three guys, but obviously we fell short collectively. 
Yeah, and I mean, a short camp, no exhibition games going into that tournament as well. You could argue that a lot of that had to do with COVID and the pandemic and everything along those lines. But, you know, there was also some questions of some guys who who are in the NBA who weren't able to play or, or, or weren't available, some of the high-level guys from overseas. And so, I mean, the big thing that I've been thinking about is, is it time to change the way we do this? We've always been waiting to get all the NBA guys on the roster, and that was going to solve all the problems. But I think what we may be seeing is that that's not going to solve all the problems. Number one, it may never happen due to contracts and injuries and stuff like that. But even if we do get them all, if, if we don't have time to practice, if you don't have time to play in games before the tournament, does it really help? And, and the thought that I had was, we always talk about how good our international players are, the ones playing overseas. So what if we identified six to eight of those guys and worked with their agents, worked with their pro teams, maybe had them here in the CEBL in the summertime and ensured that they were always available for these windows. Like it was worked into their contracts and then just placed in NBA guys, say four, maybe five and had them in particular positions, two guards, a wing, a big or two. But then depending on who is available contract wise and injury wise, we just plug them in. Like, do you think maybe that is the way to tackle this going forward? I think the hybrid model uh, makes sense in the sense of we're not, we're not America as much as, as proximity wise, we, we want to, you know, we look at them as the bar and we try to chase the States and everything we do. Um, we, we don't have, a couple hundred NBA guys and no matter what you're going to get them, but also the time period side of things when we're not qualifying for the Olympics and when we're doing, whether it's the worlds or the Americas, like they're the games that were played then really are really are a waste because it's a completely different team. So definitely, uh, you know, ad- to find the solutions, I think addressing the problems are important. And for sure, one of many problems are uh, the lack of continuity. You know, that, that was clear. But also, you know, one thing we know is that a problem isn't talent. Talent, talent comes from the NBA, talent comes from high level uh, overseas. And I think the reason why we know the, the, the problem isn't talent is because we had all the talent here. With the eight, We had the most talented team in the tournament and on paper in the world outside of America. And we haven't qualified for the Olympics in 20 years. So this is a major, major problem because of what it creates in terms of our global reputation. Um, for if you're just tuning in as a Canadian and you're not in tune with the history, you're just looking like, oh, that was a, that was a tough game. We almost won it. But if you look at it from a multiple decade perspective, it's really embarrassing at this point and it's, it's simply unacceptable. So meaning that we all have to identify the problems and find the solutions. I think what you presented is is definitely uh, something that makes logical sense in terms of it being a hybrid uh, model because we do need continuity and that's one way that it could provide that. I mentioned you've been following the team for over a decade. You know, there was a time where there was only a handful of people at these Canada basketball practices. You were one, I was another, obviously, you know, the Doug Smith, Michael Grange, Laura Ewings, NBA TV. There was a, there was obviously I'd say about 10 that were kind of always around the program, but now there's just a much brighter spotlight on them uh, with Raptors, you know, basketball Raptors, Twitter, everything along the line. So there is a lot being thrown around out there of what needs to change. And I think that's a good thing, right? There, there's more, 
there's more spotlight there to ensure that going forward, there is accountability. But at this point, what can that accountability look like, really, right? If, if Nick Nurse, for example, was non-committal about coming back right off the top, if he steps aside now, uh, we're left with a huge hole on the coaching side. And then, you know, Rowan Barrett Sr., um, I mean, obviously he's connected to, to RJ, who's one of our best players and will be playing for us for the next 15 years. So are, is it like a tough spot right now for Canada basketball and what you need to do? And, and people don't want to hear, well, we'll go get him in 2024. People don't want to hear that. But really, like, th- that's that's all there is at this point, right? It's definitely a tough spot and it's going to be tough decisions that need to be made. Difficult decisions, difficult conversations need to be had to start, you know, and the people don't want to hear that. And people also don't want to hear, Oh, wait till we have all our NBA guys. And and then if we have all our NBA guys and we still lose, this is not a time to point fingers at any one individual, because in my opinion, this is larger than one individual, both from a blame standpoint and from a success standpoint. This is a this should be a we thing, not a me thing, not an individualistic approach to this, because there isn't one individual that you could solely blame for a candidate not making it to the Olympics for 20 years. This is, I believe, is a culture uh, piece. I think that's that's huge, is setting a culture at the very top of the spectrum. In this case, when we talk about the top of the spectrum of Canadian basketball, Canada basketball as an organization is one of those uh, leadership organizations. The CEBL is now emerging into another organization that when we look at Canadian basketball, we look for leadership, but that's where we look. And at the top, I believe it's about setting a culture of togetherness and working together and cooperating together. Because when we set that tone at the top organizationally, it comes down to every level in the community, Um, at the amateur level, at the club level, at the university level, and just the idea of uh, and mindset and energy of cooperation. Like we need to cooperate with each other if we're going to take Canada to the global level. And, you know, as a person in the industry that's been around long, long enough and myself included. And I think you could speak to anybody in the industry on, on some real dialogue and real conversation. We'll tell you we're a fractured community. And at the end of the day, when Canada loses at that platform, we all lose. We all lose. We all feel it. We all get emotional about it. And we all have these conversations now when we lose. And yes, that is where you have the most difficult conversation is when we lose because we need to identify the problem or problems because there are multiple problems and then get into the solutions. For me, what I'm here to share with you and my, my perspective on it is it's a culture. We have to change the culture of not Canada basketball simply as an organization, but the culture of Canadian basketball that we can win and we can win together because we've done a lot as a country individually we have produced 20 canadian plus nba players individually everyone in their own sanctions right but we haven't had that crossover in terms of collaboration real dialogue and having that mutual uh respect for each other as professionals in this industry that we all have everybody in the community has something different to contribute and I would love to see a Canada basketball that is inclusive, truly inclusive. Because when I remember uh, Steve Nash years ago and Rowan and Jay Chiano and that whole regime was introduced, the thing that stuck in my mind when Steve was speaking was how they were talking about inclusion. I don't think we have seen that with the national program. And I'm talking about outreach to different organizations in the community, 
all the players in the game to be able to have say, to have a seat at the table. Not everyone's going to be a part of the leadership or the decision makers at the national program, but I think all the players need to feel like they're a part of it. You know, like feel like they're they're contributing in some way because at the end of the day, as Canadians, we all want to win. What would have it meant from the business of basketball in Canada, from the corporate level, to have both our women's and men's program in there uh, in, in just a couple of weeks? It's massive. It's massive, but what nothing's going to stop Canadian basketball from growing, but this certainly hurts the momentum at the corporate level because if I'm going to speak to somebody uh, a potential sponsor, an investor into Canadian basketball, the conversation changes. The conversation stays the same as it, as it always has been in terms of selling potential, selling upside, not selling production at that level. Because when we have our NBA guys at the Olympics, that's maximum visibility, that's maximum eyeballs, and that's what sponsors want to be attached to. Like Whether it's sponsorship and so financial support for Canada basketball as an organization, I also know they get certain government support that if they do make the Olympics, but then also what that means for the rest of the community, for, for the, for our pro league, for our uh, amateur, for our university and college uh, uh, athletics, for, for every level of Canadian basketball, this impacts it because it makes the sell a little bit tougher to get people to believe that Canadian basketball isn't just coming. It's not just the golden generation. It's, it's, we have actually production at the highest level of the sport. We've done it at the NBA level, right? Now the league, the CBL is, is growing and we're showing that we got high level uh, pro league in our country. And we've done it on the women's side, right? They're in the Olympics and the best of luck to them. If they can medal, that could hopefully offset the, the lack of men production. But that's that final level. And it happens to be at the highest level globally, which is key to this. Uh, and for Canada to be viewed as a global leader in, in the sport, we just can't, we're not going to be able to get over that hump until we get success uh, with the senior men's program. Eric Sabade, CEO of North Pole Hoops, with a lot of passion that is felt through so many people, and we could see it on social media after this loss. And, and as you said, I mean, nothing's going to stop Canada basketball. This just slows the momentum. And, uh, you know, we talk about it here on the show consistently, how many great things that there are. We just need to get past this other bump in the road. But as you said, we need to have difficult conversations and thank you for coming on and doing that. The NPH hour will be back after this short break here on news talk saga, nine sixty AM. We are into the home stretch here on the NPH hour on news talk saga, nine sixty AM. I'm your host, Jason Tom, as we wrap up an entire show devoted to the Canadian men's national program, which includes the different age groups below the senior men's level. And for both our women's and men's program, the success at the younger age levels has been impressive. Multiple medals at the cadet, junior, U17, U18, and U19 age levels. It truly is a testament to the work that's being put in at the grassroots level here in Canada. From the national program targeting athletes at a young age to include them in their targeted athlete strategy, and equally as important, the success at the club and AAU levels, where mostly volunteer coaches put in time on the road during the summer with a group of young, talented players to go to major tournaments, usually in the southern U.S., against the best competition in the United States and in different circuits powered by the shoe companies that we all know. And every year, some players have to decide what is better for their development and exposure. 
playing in front of college coaches at an AAU tournament with North American basketball rules or playing against the best in the world with FIBA rules, learning a new system, playing alongside usually brand new teammates. They both have unique challenges. And here to talk about the July live period and the FIBA World Cup is North Pole Hoops lead scout, F.A. Ashaka. F.A., let's start in Latvia, where our U19 squad has a chance to play for a medal, making it into the final four. Some intriguing prospects in the red and white. Who has stood out to you with a strong tournament thus far? Nana Wuswanane. I've been very impressed with uh, the way he's come in and, and, and earned a role on this team. Uh, when we previewed the U19s from the, from the very beginning, we were kind of wondering who would be that dark horse kind of guy to come in, uh, take up some spots at the, at the wing, take up some minutes at the wing spot. And he's just been that guy. He's been super steady. He's made all the hustle plays, the winning plays. Uh, you know, we have guys who do other things such as score and playmake and so forth, but he stepped in and, and he's earned a role. He's, the, he's, he's done his thing. So important to have those guys that do those little things to help your team win. As you mentioned, you know, we have, we now have a monster in the middle. We have guys that can score. We have playmakers, but to do all those little things, especially in a tournament like this, where you're getting used to people and your role is so important. And while college coaches will be watching these games on FIBA's YouTube and everybody out there can do the same. There are some NBA evaluators on the ground in Latvia getting an early look at these prospects who has helped themselves the most so far with their play? The big man, Sagidi. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's pretty much clear cut. He's been the best player on the team this tournament. Um, he's averaging a double-double, 15 and 14, with two blocks. Uh, he's just been dominant on the offensive glass. They haven't really gotten, to, gotten it to him uh, down low on the block as much as you would like to see. Um, but he's just cleaned up all the misses and, and he's getting to the foul line and he's hitting it at a respectable rate as well. So with, with Edie, we weren't really sure how good he was because bigs take longer to, to progress normally, but he's using all of that seven, four size. Um, and he's way ahead of what we thought. So not only in this tournament, like you can kind of see him playing with so much more confidence and toughness as it goes on, but it'll be very interesting to see how he carries that into Purdue the sophomore year. Yeah. Another player I wanted to ask about was, was Ryan Nemhard, the younger brother of Andrew Nemhard, who I think most Canadian basketball fans know by now, he spent some time on the senior men's national program, the best friend of RJ Barrett as well. And we've seen in the Canadian basketball scene consistently how the younger brothers are always just a little bit better than the older brothers. And Andrew is already very good, went all the way with Gonzaga last year, came up short in the championship game, but going back to Gonzaga again next year. So we're looking at him as being a first-round pick. Talk to me about his younger brother, Ryan. It's always interesting to see how the younger brothers are wired a little bit differently than the older ones, but they still have some of the same kind of, you know, mannerisms and, and the same, like... Like, they're both poised. I think they're both very poised. They're both very steady. Um, nothing really phases them too much, but, but Ryan does a good job of, of finding guys when he needs to, but then also he remains aggressive. Like, he's been the closer for us down the stretch, which is surprising to me. Like, they've, they've, gone, they've handed him the ball, and they're just like, okay, take us home. And, and he's done that. So it's been great to see. And then with Ryan as well, um, shooting, not everyone is kind of sure in terms of uh, how well he could shoot it, but – He's been, the, in terms of numbers, he's been the best shooter for us. So that's been a surprise. And it's great for him to, 
to kind of show that. And now we can see as he gets to Creighton moving on, um, if he has that added into his game, anything is possible for him as well. Also want to ask you about Caleb Houston going to Michigan, uh, kind of the unknown to a lot of us, just because I think you've mentioned in the past, not a big social media guy or anything along those lines. So doesn't push his own publicity, but obviously will be a huge part with Michigan going forward. And he started this tournament a little off from range, but he's been able to do so many other good things and actually get better as the tournament progresses. So Caleb's done a good job defensively. Uh, he's gotten into guys for his turnovers. He's also rebounding it very well, but we kind of knew Caleb as the guy to come in and, and shoot it at a high clip. And he's kind of struggled in that department. Uh, he's only shooting at like 20 per, 20% from three right now, which is, which is crazy. It's so far from, from his norm. Uh, he made the adjustment to, to kind of just get to the rim and slash. And he's been super aggressive, man. <laughs> he's, he's, uh, he's kind of taking the bulls by the horns and he's, and he's been that guy. Uh, for most of the most of the time to to kind of create offense for us and the numbers don't look the greatest but i appreciate the fact that he's he's fearless like he's going to keep attacking and we need that guy some similarities between this team and the one that won the gold medal for canada in this event four years ago at that time rj barrett was playing two years up as a 17 year old in this tournament this year it's elijah fisher who's been on social media getting big support because of his huge throwdowns and the way he's just been able to kind of bully his way through Mississauga's Paul Weir was involved in the national team for the first time as an assistant at that tournament. He's now back this time as a head coach. What will keep this team from reaching the podium and hopefully coming home with gold? Yeah, let's start with Elijah first, man. I'm, I'm, I've actually been really, really, really impressed uh, with his first experience on national stage. Um, and playing up in age as well. He's done a great job defensively. I think that's, that's been his role to come in and, and, and be a spark plug in, in that kind of manner. And he's gotten into that and gotten into guys. Like he, he digs in, he's in stance ready. Um, and he pokes at you. Uh, I love that. He's been super fearless, just trying to come in and, and, and make a name for himself. And then obviously the dunks are the dunks. Like he's a, he's an athletic freak, but in terms of what might keep us from the podium, it's the shooting, man. It's been really bad. <laughs> the shooting has been really bad. And um, again, we previewed that. We were just like, okay, what, what might be a strength? What, what might be a weakness for our, our team? And the shooting, like we're not getting it from our guy, Caleb Houston, who we thought, again, would be the top shooter. So Ben Matsurin, aside from his outburst versus Japan, where he went six to nine from three, scored 30 points, he hasn't shot the ball well. Olivia Maxson's prosper. He's still working on finding his jump shot. Uh, Nana Wusu Nane, he's not really known for spotting up like that. Enoch Lambe hasn't really seen the rotation, but he's not hitting like that. Um, it's the shooting has been very scarce, and uh, and then tournaments like these, you need shooting. Like it's 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 the biggest it's the biggest skill you need when you when you get to the highest levels of basketball. So long term, we're out talenting everyone. Uh, we just have dogs on our team, but once we we start to face the, the upper echelon guys, we're going to need to hit shots. So that'll be the main difference for us. Absolutely. The FIBA game is all about shooting. And we talk to coaches all the time. And the first thing that they ask for when we're saying, okay, coach, what are you looking at for your, for your incoming recruits? It's always shooting is first on the list for anybody listening out there, any of the young players, 
work on your shots, write down your makes and misses. It's so important. And it's something that you don't need somebody there to practice with you. Just do it yourself. But we see it at all levels. Shooting is, is a priority for everyone. And we also have a ton of Canadian teams on the AAU scene during live period and Canadians playing on American clubs as well. What have you seen from the early going from a lot of guys that weren't able to really play competitive basketball consistently for a while now? Yeah, I've been kind of watching to see how guys respond to to having several months off from playing competitive basketball for the majority of guys. Uh, they look hungry, and at the end of the day, they appreciate having the game back. So that's been great to see. I know you have NCAA coaches hitting you up daily asking for Canadian names to watch out for on the circuit. Who are some names basketball fans should be looking out for for the next few years? We always hear that the talent is even better in the younger age groups. Hit us with some names so people people can be the first to know. Well, we talked about shooting and, and where the game is going. Zayden Cross is a guy to definitely keep track of uh, with grassroots right now. Um, he's that prototypical 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, guard wing who can fight out just score it, but shooting is his thing. Um, uh, I love his length. Uh, I love the way he could fill it up, and he's, and he's super skilled. Um, definitely needs to, you know, improve in terms of just size, mass, and and kind of get more a little bit more explosive, but uh, he's a name to definitely watch out for. Well, against Zach Jr., playing for Canada Elite. Uh, he just recently got offered by East Carolina, uh, the Quebec kids. They're, uh, they're monsters, uh, and he might be the next one kind of in line uh, of who, who has next, um, super strong, explosive, uh, could shoot it. Uh, he looked really good with, uh, NBA Academy Latin America, uh, in Mexico. Um, he's only going to continue to build on the resume he has right now. And, and I could see where he picks up a lot more traction as the summer moves on. And then lastly, obviously all eyes are on shade and chart, uh, shade so Shaden not playing with the U19s and, and, and staying with Uplay, Peach Jam coming up. Uh, he's taken a couple of visits recently to Kentucky, Arizona. Um, guys are kind of wondering. It's, it's kind of floating out there. Maybe he might go after this summer, whatever the case may be. Uh, he's, he's climbing the charts now. He's, his name is out there. Um, a lot of the, the ranking systems out here, they've moved him up. They recognize how special of a talent he is. So what he does this summer is, is going to be huge as well. That's one thing that a lot of people don't realize our Canadian school system, a little different than the U S high school system. So a lot of our players who say are to graduate in 2022 can actually graduate in 2021 and head to the NCAA a year early. So something to look out for there. FA Ashaka lead scout for North pole hoops, Canada's longest running scouting service. You can learn more at northpolehoops.com and you can follow FA on Twitter at, E-S-H-A-K-A-H and also follow at NPH Scouting as FA's team is covering as many up-and-coming Canadians as possible. As always, FA, thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. Appreciate it, Jason. We're out of time here on the NPH Hour. Thank you for listening on News Talk Saga 960 AM. You can find all of our podcasts on North Pole Hoops YouTube channel and wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, this is Jason Tom reminding you professional basketball is back here in Canada. Watch some great games on CEBL Plus, the Canadian Elite Basketball League doing special things here north of the border. And remember, 
support everything that is Canadian basketball.